O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 105, the first 22 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, February the 17th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing to look at um, Isaiah's prophecies today. We're in the 65th chapter, the first 12 verses. We're also in continuing in 1 Timothy, chapter 4, the first 16 verses, and in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 13 to 27. So Isaiah begins by saying, I was ready to be, he's speaking for um, the Lord here. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. So in other words, it was, it was his desire to be sought and found. And, and he made it easy to do so by saying, here am I, here am I. And that's an important thing in all of biblical history, especially in, in the Old Testament, this here am I or here I am. Um, we see it again and again from Moses to Abraham to um, uh, Isaiah and others. And the Lord speaking in return, here I am. You know, it's important for us to always be um, telling people that the Lord wants to be known. It's his desire to make himself known. He can be known in creation. He can be known in all these other uh, ways. But mostly he wants us to find him. In Christ Jesus, <clears throat> I spread out my hands all the day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that's not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who scented tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near to me, for I'm too holy for you. He says, they're, they're following their own devices and desires of their own hearts, as the um, the uh, prayer, the general confession in um, morning prayer says, we follow too much the devices and desires of our own hearts, and that's that's our biggest problem. Is is that we follow the devices and desires of our own hearts, and he's saying they've gone so far astray. They're sacrificing in all these places, these gardens and tombs and all that. All that stuff was pra- pagan practice. Um, and so he, he says, but then they say, keep to yourself, don't come near me, for I'm too holy for you. I mean, I see this all the time in, in Asheville, in our society here. Um, people who, who honestly believe themselves to be holy because they practice this other stuff. <clears throat> um, there are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it's written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountain and insulted me on the hills. I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. It's their deeds, but also the deeds of the fathers. He's saying this is a practice that's become common among you, and now it's passed down from generation to generation. And so it's all got to be dealt with. 
it's there's got to be the recognition that this is wrong and so it it has to go back to that prior generation to be able to show what was wrong and and that it's been wrong all this time thus says the lord as the new wine is found in the cluster and they say do not destroy it for there's blessing in it i will do for my servant's sake and not destroy them all i will bring forth offspring from jacob and from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servants shall dwell there. He said, that, he said there will be a remnant. That essentially is what he's saying. There will be a remnant, and it will be a holy remnant, and they will then pass this along to others. And as I've said multiple times, there's, there are two horizons for the fulfillment of, of God's word to the prophets. That There's an immediate context, the context that would make sense to the people to whom they were prophesying. But then there's a second horizon, which is the ultimate and final and complete and eternal fulfillment of those same things. And so part of it is God weeds out people. He weeds out those who would call, uh, call the people astray and makes a holy remnant he does that in Israel, and he does it in the church. But ultimately what happens is God makes it so that only the chosen are even living any longer, which will be the second, the big judgment. Sharon, which is the, it's a coastal plain uh, near where Tel Aviv is. Um, but it, at, the t- at the time, it was a swampland. And so nothing grew there. So Sharon shall become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor, a place for the herds to lie down for my people who have sought me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny. Those are capitalized. Fortune and destiny are here. In other words, that they they've taken the place of God rather than rather than um, it's him. Uh, it's it's ascribed to fortune and destiny. Karma would be another word for that. I will destine you to the sword, and all of you bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you didn't answer. When I spoke, you didn't listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. So he's announcing judgment, but it's not a f- full judgment. He, he's still in covenant with the nation, and so it's it's essentially God's always looking for the righteous one's with whom he can work. In the gospel today, he's in the temple. This is after the Palm Sunday entrance and all that, and, and he's facing opposition from the leadership. Remember yesterday, it was the chief priests and the scribes who were confronting Jesus over him throwing out the money changers and the sellers of sacrificial animals and the teaching in the temple and all that, and they confronted him over that. And now today we get three different groups who are going to confront Jesus. So everybody is taking their little run at him. The chief priests and the scribes deal was, um, who gave you the authority to be here? And Jesus said, um, you, t- uh, you tell me the answer to the question of John the Baptist was, was his anointing, and his message from God or from man. And it goes from there. And so today what we get is some of the Pharisees and the Herodians. These are two odd groups to come together. They, they couldn't have had less in common. The Herodians were just sort of barely Jewish. They had made a full accommodation with Rome, and they were typically prospering 
from the accommodation they had made. They, they were sort of, you know, Roman sympathizers at some level and had very little to do with religion, and the Pharisees were exactly the opposite of that. They were separatists in some ways, but who, who not, not like the Zealots or the Essene community, but they, the Pharisees were the ones who believed themselves to have been keeping the law. And so they're going to pose a question to Jesus because the, he, he's, he is their enemy of all of these people. And so they're willing to make common calls and come against him. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and don't care about anyone's opinion. That's some flattery. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. It's always best, if you want to try and trip somebody up, to, to start with flattery. Is, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, these two groups would, would both have an answer to that question of, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? The Pharisees would say no, because it's a recognition of a king. It's a recognition of a foreign power and their, their ability to rule over you. But, but you're already in covenant relationship with God who rules over you. And the Herodians would have said it's perfectly fine <laughs> to pay taxes to Caesar. So <clears throat> knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's then and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And so in, in both cases, I mean, that, like I said, the Pharisees would have said, no, it's not okay to pay taxes to Caesar. And the Herodians would have said, absolutely, no problem at all. What Jesus does is he flips the question on its ear, and he, and he makes it a religious question. And the way he does that is to say, let me see that coin. He looks at it, and he says it's got Herod, or not Herod, Caesar's picture on it. Therefore, it must belong to Caesar. And the unspoken part, when he says, render to God the things that are God's, is whose, whose likeness and image, what, what has God's likeness and image, and re- render that to him. So this money thing is an, is an immaterial question in some ways, because give to Caesar whatever belongs to Caesar, and it must belong to him because it's got his picture on it, but give God the things that are God's, and that would be your life. What, what do you have the most value for? Uh, and, and they're asking questions about taxes, and Jesus is saying that's not really the issue. The, the main thing here is is give to God what belongs to him, which is exactly what the point of the parable was with the owner of the vineyard. And then the Sadducees came to him, and they don't even believe in the resurrection, and so they give him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise. The seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife shall she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And their belief is is that they first believe there's no resurrection to start with. And then not even believing in it, they propose this stupid question, um, this problem for Jesus, that that's not a problem at all, because what they assume is the resurrection is some sort, and the resurrected body is somehow that this life is an analog for that one, in every way, and and Jesus said to them, "Isn't this the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven." And so there's, there's no reproductive reason for marriage. 
and but there's a they're they're like angels in heaven in the sense of of that that it's not that's not the way it's going to be the the angels that came down to earth in in Genesis six the Nephilim that that saw the beauty of the daughters of men they were not in heaven. And so when they came to earth, there was reproductive capacity. Jesus says that they're like the angels in heaven, and they don't reproduce. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I'm the God of Abraham, I'm the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not God of the dead, but of the living. You're quite wrong. So he's proving the resurrection from the way God used the, the verb, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the, there's this this sense in which they, they're missing some really basic things. And I wonder sometimes how much basic stuff we miss because we don't read that carefully in the Scriptures. We don't read carefully enough to notice the verb tenses, to notice in, in some places where Jesus is using the word you, but he's using it in a plural sense, not a singular sense when he speaks to people. Um, he does that when he talks to Nicodemus. He uses it multiple times in, in convicting not just Nicodemus, but the Pharisees um, of not understanding things. And here he uses the verbs that are found in, in God's response to Moses at the burning bush to show that, that the I am proves that they are not that they were they are and it's it's an important thing for us to understand this and to see what goes on and and, and this is a constant kind of thing there's always a group of people whether they're atheists or whatever who are trying to trip christians up and, and we can be wise like this because we can pray and ask God to give us that wisdom through the power of the Holy Spirit that we need to meet these kinds of challenges. In the epistle, Paul kind of goes in that same direction and tells Timothy to stay strong and stay clear in the Word of God. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, it depends. Do we what kind of supernatural worldview do we have? Right? Do we do we believe that demons can teach? Do we believe what do we believe about these things? And and so in Ephesus, where Timothy is, there there were like I said the Sibyls who were sort of they would go into a cave where there was some some gases that that were released there, and they would go into kind of a trance in this um, thing, and then come out and give words. And teachings. Well, that's kind of what Paul's referring to here, is, is that where are they getting this teaching? They're getting it by going into this cave and, and submitting themselves to this um, strange kind of phenomenon, and then they come out with what they're going to teach. And, and he would say, and rightfully so, those are teachings of demons. They're getting them from the demonic world, not from Christ himself. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So there's a different kind of a problem in Ephesus than there uh, were in other places. Other places, sometimes Paul would have to deal with the issues like they were being taught that, that the body and the spirit were two separate things. And what was done to the body really didn't matter to the spirit. And so you could do anything. 
You could have sex with prostitutes. You could, you know, you you had freedom to do whatever with your body, so long as you kept your spirit clean. I don't know how you do that, but, um, but that was the the teaching in some places. Here it's the other way around. It's that that people are are living more not stoic. That's not the right word, but it's um, more lives that took the body so seriously uh, that that they they wouldn't allow even things that are allowed by God, they wouldn't allow those things. <clears throat> it's just that um, God created these things. He created marriage. He created food and gave it to us to eat. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so that's the important thing is, is that when we receive things, we need to receive those things with thanksgiving as part of God's good creation and provision for his children. And, and that's what may, makes all the difference in the world, Paul says, is the thanksgiving we give for that, the thanks to God we give for the things that we receive. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you've followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while body, bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life of the world to come. And so what, we, what he's saying is, is that don't just make this an intellectual thing, Timothy. No, train yourself for godliness. So actually live out what Scripture commands and stay away from what it condemns. The saying is trustworthy and fully of acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And so we who believe actually experience that salvation. God is the Savior of all people, whether we allow him to be or not. He's the only hope that we have. And so he is especially the Savior of those who believe because we actually participate in his salvation. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So he didn't just say, teach these things whenever you talk. No, he says, in the way you walk, in the way you live your life, teach these truths. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So when they raised him up, they prayed over him and prophesied over him, over who he was to be. They were speaking for God, Paul says in those things. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. In other words, make it your rule of life to practice the things that you teach. And that way you teach in every single way. Chuck Murphy, my mentor, used to say all the time, everything you do teaches. And it's true. What we, what we observe also teaches. It's not just when we're in a classroom setting or whatever that we teach. Everything we do teaches. And if you, if you doubt that, then look at your children and listen to your children when they get older. And, and suddenly you'll hear, oh, wow, that sounds just like my wife. That sounds just like me when they say that. And it's just they're learning things from observation, not just listening. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. What we get in all these lessons today are a couple of things. And, and one is that, that everything we do matters. 
And we need to do everything thoughtfully and prayerfully. So we, we need to be able to answer the question, is it okay to pay taxes? We need to be able to think through that and see the implication of that. And then we need to, to think about all the things that we believe and all the things that we know about the faith. And we need to be able to sort through those things and, and see, is, is the way I think about spiritual things, is it deeply influenced by the material things that I see. Um, so, you, so you don't ask silly questions about the resurrection, and you, and you don't assume that the spiritual world is, um, that the material world is an analog for the spiritual world. Um, and, and then we have to be careful that we don't just speak the word, we don't just debate the word, we live the word. And in that way, we show that we truly believe it is true.